Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Battle on all fronts as the country wages war against a dangerous variant threatening another catastrophic surge. A largely preventable tragedy that will get worse before it gets better. Congress works overtime to finally pass an infrastructure bill. Will they be able to get it done? I'll speak with a key Republican negotiator, Senator Bill Cassidy, next. And attempted coup? New details emerge of President Trump's push to overturn the election as an investigation by a top Senate committee digs deeper into a plot to push Trump's election lies. What have they learned? The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, joins me in moments to discuss. Plus, sit-in success. Millions of Americans in danger of losing their homes can now breathe a sigh of relief because one Democratic member of Congress drove the most powerful person in Washington to take action. Sometimes presence makes all the difference, and that's what this was here. I'll speak to the leader of the protest, Congresswoman Cori Bush, ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is in Rewind. For the first time since February, the U.S. is averaging more than 100,000 new COVID cases per day. Hospitalizations and deaths are also once again on the rise, almost exclusively among the unvaccinated. President Biden this week flashed new levels of frustration, rebuking Republican governors for standing in the way of vaccine and mask requirements. If some governors aren't willing to do the right thing to beat this pandemic, then they should allow businesses and universities who want to do the right thing to be able to do it. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. All this as the Senate inches closer to passing the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal. The bill cleared a key procedural hurdle yesterday, but its dash across the finish line was stalled by, no surprise, a partisan stalemate. Senators are confident, though, that the deal will pass. When? Well, that remains a little bit murky. Joining us now is one of the Republican senators behind the deal, Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Thank you so much for joining me, Senator. I want to talk about infrastructure in a moment, but I want to start by uh, discussing the pandemic, which is really ravaging the country and especially your state uh, of Louisiana. It's in dire crisis, a record number of hospitalizations. ICUs are running out of beds. You are also a physician. So when you see this, what goes through your mind? Well, we can stop it. We have it within our power to stop it. Each person that is vaccinated now protects not only herself or himself, but those around them because no longer is she as likely to pass the, pass the infection to others. If we don't want this, we have it within our control. All we need to do is to get vaccinated. Your uh, state's governor, Don Bell Edwards, issued a new mask mandate, put it into effect this week. Was that the right move? Well, I'm now going to speak as a doctor. If you have a, a, a large po- percentage of your population which is not vaccinated, and your infection rate is going up, you got one of two choices. 
If you're inside, either you're vaccinated or you have to wear a mask. Otherwise, you're at too great a risk to further spread infection, to further pack those emergency rooms, to further prevent people who have terrible accidents from getting cared for because the hospital is full of COVID. And there is a choice. On the other hand, if we don't want mask mandates, get vaccinated, the infection rate goes down and you don't have a mandate. So it sounds like you're saying that's a yes, given where As a doctor, are. I will tell you, you've got two choices to mm-hmm. stop that infection. Okay. Either get vaccinated or wear a mask. Some governors, uh, like Ron DeSantis in Florida, Greg Abbott in Texas, they're blocking local officials from imposing restrictions like mask mandates. The virus is surging to record highs in, in those states, including yours. So as you said, you are a doctor, you are an elected official. Shouldn't local officials be allowed to make decisions like mask mandates if they believe that's best for their local community? I'm a conservative. I think you govern best when you govern closest to the people being governed. And if a local community is having a, their ICU is full and the people at the local school see that they've got to make sure they stay open because otherwise children miss out for another year of school and they put in policy, then the local officials should be listened to. That is a conservative principle. So you disagree with Governor DeSantis? I do disagree with Governor DeSantis. The local official should have control here. I, I don't want top-down from Washington, D.C. I don't want top-down from a governor's office. Sometimes, yes, okay, national defense and such like that. But when it comes to local conditions, if my hospital's full and my vaccination rate is low and infection rate is going crazy, we should allow local officials to make those decisions best for their community. Is he playing politics with this? You know, I don't know if he's playing politics. I try not to guess other people's motives. I will say uh, politicians should not kind of carte blanche except what the public health doctor says. But they shouldn't shouldn't just gratuitously ignore it either. There has to be a balance there. And whenever politicians mess with public health, um, usually it doesn't work out well for public health. And ultimately, it doesn't work out for the politician because public health suffers and the American people want public health. So let's turn to infrastructure, uh, the, which is something that you helped to craft. The Senate is moving pretty slowly, but getting there slowly. So first of all, when do you think it's going to pass and how many Republicans will vote yes? So we've had about 17 or 18 who've indicated that they're going to vote yes. Uh, and uh, probably it's going to pass. We'll have a vote tonight, uh, 730, uh, and then another vote if you just look at the clock playing out mm-hmm. sometime on Tuesday. So it could go quicker, but it's going. And that's the good thing. Uh, It's going. You were in regular communications with President Biden as you got this deal done. What were those conversations like? And do you think this could have happened without that kind of dialogue? No, the White House engaged. And and, uh, that's a good thing, because obviously the negotiations were between the Democratic White House, the Democratic senators and the Republican senators with a healthy mix of of my colleagues uh, from the House, the Problem Solvers Caucus, Josh Gottheimer, Brian Fitzpatrick and the folks they work with. Um, but obviously at some point they signaled they wanted it to happen. And by the way, because they wanted to have it to happen, there's going to be uh, over a trillion dollars spent on roads and bridges and flood protection and uh, waterways and uh, flood mitigation, coastal restoration. I could go down the list and create hundreds of thousands of jobs. So I'm glad they engaged. And what about your personal interactions with President Biden? Yeah, so at some point the president called me and he said, listen, everything I've seen so far does not have a section on resiliency or a section on energy. Um, and I know that you've been working with Gottheimer and Fitzpatrick to come up with such a thing. Can you in, in, engage? Uh, at that point, we merged a couple of independent efforts. Mm-hmm. And so now we have um, 16 to $17 billion going to the Army Corps of Engineers 
for coastal restoration and 3.5 or 2.5 for FEMA for flood mitigation. Because it was the kind of negotiation that historically was done to get things done, which we haven't yes. seen in a long time in Washington. Well, we've seen it. We've seen it. For example, uh, keep in mind, Republicans, when we control the Senate, we passed four or five relief packages for COVID relief at the end of the term. By, why bipartisan? That's true. I want to ask you, though, specifically about this, because some of your uh, fellow Senate Republicans say they're going to oppose this. And they're pointing to a Congressional Budget Office estimate that it's $250 billion uh, that it adds to the deficit that much. Here's what some of your GOP colleagues have said. Chuck Grassley said it was disappointing. John Cornyn called it a real problem. Mike Braun called it the swamp's debt bomb. What do you know that they don't? We absolutely said this is how it was going to be. A half of what we proposed is going to be scored by CBOs paid for. We were upfront about that. And a half, because of their rules, they won't. Now, the half that we won't are things that a reasonable person would say, hmm, yeah, it's a pay for. For example, $53 billion Congress has already appropriated for federal unemployment supplemental payments are not being used for that. So we are repurposing that, just as we told folks we're going to repurpose, repurposing for the sake of paying for this. CBO doesn't give us credit. But that's $53 billion that we're repurposing that a reasonable person would say, yeah, that pays for it. Do you think just more broadly it's a bit rich that under President Trump the national debt climbed almost $8 trillion and now some of your colleagues are worried about the debt again? Well, on the other hand, uh, first, um, uh, the first part of your thing, um, uh, let's face it, a lot of that spending was in response to COVID. Okay, so we understood when COVID broke, we had to put up payroll protection plans. That's true, but a lot of it happened before COVID. But secondly, I will point out that President Trump proposed a $1.5 trillion package, which most Republicans were all for, and only 5% of it was paid for. We have $550 billion of new spending, of which we can reasonably say is paid for, but certainly one half by CBO score. And now folks are saying, oh, can't vote for that. (laughs) Okay, well, that's okay. But on the other hand, we're creating jobs, we're creating bridges, we're protecting people from flooding. Hopefully they change their mind. So uh, many in your party say that they're opposed to this on its substance, but also because that it's really just cover, giving cover to Democrats so that they can pass their multi-trillion dollar reconciliation bill. I know you say they're separate. Uh, but a lot of Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, don't necessarily see it that way. Are the, they playing you here? The fact that Pelosi says she has to link them tells you she doesn't have the votes for the $3.5 trillion package. One of my colleagues said, hey, a Democratic colleague, said um, infrastructure is the dessert. The $3.5 trillion spend a lot of money and tax a lot of money is spinach. I've eaten my dessert and now I'm supposed to eat my spinach? I don't think so. The other thing, the Problem Solvers Caucus, a coalition of 28 Republicans, 28 Democrats, headed by Gottheimer and Fitzpatrick, have come out in favor of this. She doesn't need a radical left wing. She can pass the, the infrastructure package with just that committed group of American congressmen and women who want to see our country get better to have the $110 billion for the roads and bridges and highways, et cetera, um, and the new jobs. They can pass the infrastructure package without having their radical left. And that, I think, opens a pathway. Before I let you go, I want to ask about the investigation that Senator Dick Durbin of Judiciary, the Judiciary Chairman, who's coming on after you, is doing uh, into the way that former President Trump tried to overturn the election. A former top Justice Department official described 
Trump's direct instructions to push false election fraud claims. I know you've condemned the lies about the election, but what does it tell you about the lengths that the former president was willing to go to overturn the election? Excuse me. Now, first, what you just described is, one, if it happened, it's wrong. Let's say that. Secondly, though, as you describe it, uh, and I read the New York Times article, uh, an unnamed official in a closed-door session reportedly said this. So it still kind of meets the definition of hearsay at this point. If it happened, it's wrong. On the other hand, I'd like some sort of validation beyond that which I just described. Okay. Senator Bill Cassidy, thank you so much for joining me. appreciate thank you, it. Donna. Thank you. We could have been one Trump move away from a full-blown coup attempt. The chairman of the committee investigating a plot to overturn the election inside the Justice Department joins me next. And she took action to get action. Congresswoman Cori Bush is here after her marathon protest to stop evictions. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. We're learning new details of just how close President Trump came to enlisting the Justice Department in his scheme to overturn the election. This weekend, investigators on Capitol Hill interviewed two top justice officials at the center of the former president's efforts. Both officials, according to a source familiar with the matter, provided detailed accounts of a tumultuous period during which senior Justice Department lawyers sought to deploy the department's resources to push Trump's false claims of voter fraud. Joining me to discuss this is the chairman of the committee investigating all of that, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, So your committee interviewed Jeffrey Rosen, who is was the acting attorney general for Donald Trump at the end of his presidency. Rosen was reportedly getting calls from Trump nearly every day about overturning election results. What did he tell you? He told us a lot, seven hours uh, of testimony. And I might quickly add, this was done on a bipartisan basis, Democratic staff and Republican uh, legal staff asking questions during this period of time. Uh, Mr. Rosen appeared voluntarily, which says a lot, uh, and cooperated with us. Uh, the, the Justice Department had set it up for us and said we're waiving any privilege. He can, he can speak to any issue. We're not holding him back. And I thought he was very open. And uh, there's a lot there, an awful lot there. You can imagine seven hours of testimony. Uh, and it really is important that we ask these questions because what was going on in the Department of Justice was frightening from a constitutional point of view. To think that Bill Barr left, resigned after he had announced he didn't see irregularities in the election, and then his replacement was under extraordinary pressure, the President of the United States, even to the point where they were talking about replacing him. Yeah. Uh, that pressure was on. So and you said there's a lot there. There is a lot there. What did he tell you specifically about the pressure that the former president placed on him directly? I can't get into that at this moment, but I will tell you that ultimately there will be a report where there are more people that we will try to bring in. I would like to bring in Jeffrey Clark, for example. He was the, uh, the heir apparent in Trump's mind if uh, Rosen was not going to do his bidding. And Rosen stood fast and didn't. Uh, and so there was a tense period of time there in a moment where the president was going to put his own man in uh, as attorney general. I understand you're not ready to give me the details of what he said during those seven hours. But th- I guess the question, the key question is whether... The former president, when he was still president, tried to get Jeffrey Rosen to overturn the election results. 
It was not that direct, but he was asking him to do certain things uh, related to states' uh, election returns, uh, which he refused to do. He just said, I'm not going to do that. Uh, he was being asked by the White House, uh, the leadership in the White House, to meet with certain people who had these wild, bizarre theories of why that election wasn't valid, and he refused to do it. I'd have to say history is going to be mis- very kind to Mr. Rosen when it's all over. And I, when he was initially appointed, I didn't think that was the case. I was wrong. When you were listening to that testimony yesterday, what, what was the most shocking to you? Just how directly, personally involved the president was, the pressure he was putting on Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, it was real, very real. And it was very specific. This president's not subtle when he wants something, a former president. Is not subtle when he wants something. And I think uh, it, it's a good thing for America that we had a person like Rosen in that position uh, who stood, withstood the pressure. Sounds like this is a man, Donald Trump, who, who actually knew about the levers of power that he had to potentially try to use to keep the election results from happening. Yes. And I also say that there, there were forces within the White House who were also pushing back against the president's wild views. Uh, But uh, having said that, it was a very tense period in history. We're going to get to the bottom of it. And the voluntary cooperation of people like Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue is invaluable. There's another uh, meeting coming up this week, another interview. Uh, We're going to keep pushing forward on this. I've been on this since January, and now we're getting some real results. I want to ask about Richard Donahue, but who within the White House was pushing back against the president? I can't get into that at this point. You gave me a teaser there. Yeah, I know. But (laughs) I I will tell you that... uh, the president's instincts were just flat out wrong, what he tried to do because of this big lie that he still holds on to to this day. Fortunately, a lot of people saw through it and did their best to calm him down. So you mentioned that you also spoke with the acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue, uh, on Friday. According to notes that have actually been released, he witnessed President Trump telling his boss to just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the R congressman. Yes, I'm afraid uh, I can't get into specific testimony, but I'm afraid that was the impression it was clear. The president was looking for a green light from an attorney general. Bill Barr reached a point where he couldn't do it anymore, uh, and Rosen stepped in, and he was not prepared to do it, and the president said, we'll find another one. Think about that for a second. The president is looking for the right person as attorney general who will give him an answer of yes. And Richard Donahue was deputy attorney general. He, he witnessed all of this. Uh- there are also questions about uh, uh, Jeffrey Clark, who's the other man you said you want to talk to, about whether or not he interacted with Republican elected officials, particularly uh, Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry. What did you learn about that? That, that part we have not, I, I haven't seen any testimony from that, uh, but uh, we're going to do our best to ask uh, Mr. Clark to come in and tell the story from his point of view. Are you worried that there were sitting members of Congress who were involved in this? It's a legitimate question. Uh, Do you believe that Jeffrey Clark is going to come in, or will you have to subpoena him? I don't know. It'll be interesting. He he has nothing to fall back on now with Department of Justice policy. Merrick Garland has opened the door and said, we're waiving all privilege here. So he may decide for personal reasons or other reasons he doesn't want to testify, but I hope he will. And what about the former Attorney General, Bill Barr? I know you want to talk to him. Do you think he will come in voluntarily? I hope so. We have a lot of questions relating to this incident and others uh, during the tenure that he was Attorney General. Will you subpoena him if he doesn't? It takes bipartisan vote to subpoena. I don't know that we're going to be able to accomplish that. 
people think the mighty Senate Judiciary Committee can just send out the subpoenas and off we go. It's much more constrained. How helpful would it be to actually speak with former President Donald Trump? Not likely. Um, what has shocked you the most, generally speaking, in terms of what you have seen? You said you've been looking into this since January. I guess the thought that we, we've come to accept it. This president and his bizarre conduct, we came, came to accept over four years as normal. Uh, it, it's outrageous. Uh, when you look back on the Richard Nixon episode and the Saturday Night Massacre, people out of principle were turning around and threatening to resign. Same thing happened here, incidentally, within the, the Department of Justice. There was a point where virtually everyone in authority in the Department of Justice was going to walk if the president had his way. I mean, these are moments in history which you never want to see repeated, and with Donald Trump, they were. Is what you're seeing and what you're describing an attempted coup? Well, it was, they were going through the ordinary process. It is as if the president was removing the attorney general and making pronouncements, which would happen in a, a coup, I suppose, by classic definition. But it was leading up to that uh, kind of pro- process. And last question on this. Have you spoken to the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, and do you think that there's potential for criminal charges? I don't know the answer to that. I think we're, it's too early in the investigation. Okay, so uh, I want to ask about infrastructure, sure. the deal that is on the floor as we speak. Uh, it's poised to pass in, in coming days. There are a group of moderate House Democrats who wrote to Speaker Nancy Pelosi and said, please back off your pledge to hold the infrastructure bill until the Senate passes the $3.5 trillion reconciliation plan. This is part of the letter. This is a once-in-a-century investment this once-in-a-century investment deserves its own consideration without regard to other legislation. After years of waiting, the country cannot afford unnecessary delays to finally deliver on physical infrastructure package. So if it is that vital, should the House pass it right away? Well, Dana, let me see initially. The real question in the Senate, I guess in the Senate, perhaps in the House as well, is whether the center will hold. There's a question now why we're waiting, doing nothing day after day after day. There are forces still trying to stop this bipartisan agreement in the United States Senate. Uh, You just had Bill Cassidy on. He's become a real friend. We've worked together on this. I trust him. He trusts me. We have candid conversations, uh, and that's a good thing. We considered more amendments on the floor of the Senate, 22 with this bill, than we had in a year under Senator McConnell in previous years. But the question now is moving forward. What can we accomplish Uh, Nancy Pelosi has an extraordinary challenge, four-vote margin. That isn't much uh, when you you really sit down and count votes. Uh, I don't want to really project a strategy. I want her to do it. She's as accomplished as they come. I can understand people want to see the infrastructure bill pass with no strings attached. But she has to hold not not just enough votes for the infrastructure bill, but the follow-on budget resolution. So I, I, I give her all the flexibility she needs to reach that goal. And before I let you go, I have to ask about the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Um, It seems as though you're thinking about, you and your colleagues are thinking about stretching the limits of the Senate rules, maybe trying to get voting rights in. That's what Senator Klobuchar mentioned. You mentioned DACA. Um, How much are you going to try to stuff in there? Well, I can tell you that uh, this is a once in a political lifetime opportunity when it comes to issues like immigration. It's been 36 years since we've had immigration reform. It's long overdue. Everyone knows the system is broken. We can see it at our borders. We know it already internally. And there is precedent. We have included, the Republicans have included immigration measures in 2005 in the same budget resolution. 
So I think it's not an unreasonable request, and it's long overdue. Senator Dick Durbin, Judiciary Chair, uh, Senate Majority Whip. You've got a lot of titles. <laughs> and grandfather, that's another one. You bet. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. A sit-in on the steps of the Capitol gets the president's attention and throws millions of struggling Americans a potential lifeline. How did Congresswoman Cori Bush get the White House to act? She joins me next. Welcome back to State of the Union. For her, it's personal. This week, for several days and nights, Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush, who once lived in a car with her two children, slept on the steps of the Capitol, pushing Congress and the president to help keep millions of Americans from facing eviction. And it forced something you don't see here in Washington very often, action. She joins me live now from St. Louis. Thank you so much, Congresswoman, for joining me. You've talked a lot over the last week about how personal a fight this was for you being evicted three times yourself, including while you were raising two young children. And I'm going to ask you about some of the details of what happened. But before, I can't help but wonder, given the fact that you raised those kids, now they're grown up, what did they think of your efforts? <laughs> to them, it's like, this is what mom does. Mom, you know, mom fights for everyone. And they've seen me do this, uh, whether sleeping out on the street to help in my own community, you know, to, to raise awareness to what's happening to our unhoused community members, to fighting um, for justice for Michael Brown, you know, who's the, an- the anniversary of um, his death is tomorrow. Uh, and so my children have seen this over and over again, and they stand with me. And, it, you know, they've been radicalized, too. So they're, this, is, this is who they want to see their mother. You know, this is who they know. Your efforts resulted in the CDC issuing a new 60-day eviction freeze for people living in areas with high or substantial COVID transmission, which basically covers almost the whole country right now. But as you know, even President Biden said he's not really sure whether this move is constitutional. It's already facing legal challenges. So if the courts ultimately strike it down, what's your next move? Well, so that's why I rushed back to St. Louis to make sure that and we've been telling we've been saying it nationally that we have to do the work now to get this money out. We have to do the work to make sure that our states and our local governments are able to Um, to release this money, get this money out into the hands of the people who need it the most. So we're telling tenants, we're telling um, we're telling landlords to, uh, you know, go online or show up at the clinics that are happening around the country and get and and, um, apply for this money. And for our local government and states, please get this money out. This has to happen. 60 days we may not have. So we are we are um, pushing really hard to make sure that people apply. And that's one thing that we keep hearing, too, is that um, especially locally, I, I've heard, well, people aren't applying. Well, we understand that there have been barriers to people applying and, and, um, and those resources being able to be moved. So we are working out those kinks right now. I want to ask you about an op-ed that you wrote for CNN.com. And in it, you said, quote, now that we have again demonstrated what grassroots movements are capable of. There is no limit to what we can do. The change that we have been marching, organizing, and pushing for is within reach. We just have to take it. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi seems to have taken a, a different stance. On Friday, she drew a distinction. She's done this before between being an advocate and being a legislator. What's your response? I'm both. 
<laughs> I'm both. I walked into Congress before I walked into Congress after I won my primary. I started talking about being a politivist. I am a politivist. I don't I think that it's OK to have both because when we when we legislate, yes, we have that power of the pen, the power of the purse. We're able to write bills. We're able to co-sponsor, send letters. All of that is wonderful. You need that. But the polit the, the, the activist side of me, that advocate is the one that remembers what it was like to to be in positions where um, I felt overlooked and neglected and 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 unheard. And so many others in our communities. I'm a nurse. So I am always advocating. That's who that's who that's what we do. And so having both of those, that's that pressure. The activist is going to bring the pressure. The activist is going to to highlight the issue so that the legislator can then hit the ball out of the park. Congresswoman, I want to ask about the criticism that you're facing uh, about comments you made in an interview this past week. I want our viewers to listen. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to, to allow that. So if I end up spending 200000 if I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police. So I know you've seen that Republicans are pointing to the fact that you said you have your own security while almost in the same breath advocating for defunding the police. Now, I do want to emphasize, I understand you have security protection because you have received multiple death threats. But the clip that I just played is being used in attack ads against not not you, but not just you, but other Democrats. So could those comments end up being harmful to your fellow Democrats, politically speaking? I think what we have to look at is the fact that I made it to Congress in in 2020. I was elected to Congress and we're still fighting this same fight. We're still fighting to save black lives. That was not that work was not done before I got here. This is the reason why I ran was to save lives, to save my son's life. It was because Michael Brown, who we're fighting for, can still trying to get justice for um, is because he didn't get justice. And Von Derrick Myers didn't get justice and Kajim Powell didn't get justice and so many others. That is why. And because that was not com- that was not fixed before I got here to then come at me and say, you're the reason why we have these problems. No, the, the, the reason why we have these problems is because those that were in power and could have fixed this problem before now didn't and cost it cost lives and so now that I'm here I we just we just um, introduced the People's Response Act to make sure that we are looking at the money that money that should be going to social safety nets to make sure that our our community members who are um, living with uh, mental health um, uh, issues um, are are able to function and live in society um, the way that uh, that anyone would ask to so I don't believe as far as my as far as my colleagues, you know, I absolutely empathize. I empathize. But you know what? The same thing that the Republicans would do, which is figure out how to work with this on a, on a comms basis. That's what we have to do. My job is to save lives, the lives well, in my community, because when we're when we're talking about every single year increasing the budget for police and then and then and then the budget for like health and human services continuing to shrink. And St. Louis being number one for police violence year after year after year. Number one, number two for homicides year and year after Congress year. One. So when, when, when we're adding more money to the police, but but we're still dying. So Congress something has I, to change. I, yeah. And I, and I hear what you're saying. But, but I also heard you say that 
you think it's a comms problem. Is it that? Because... No, I'm saying that we can also... that That's another way that you can tackle this. You have to tackle it from more than one place. We have to work on what we want to say, what, what, are, what is our message, but then we also have to understand that we, we have to save lives too. St. Louis can't keep get being put on the back burner at all that, and I'm here to stand up for my community. Congresswoman Cori Bush, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. And up next, a revealing conversation with one of the highest ranking female staffers in the White House. She started on a famous astronaut's political campaign and hasn't stopped launching through glass ceilings ever since. Biden's senior advisor, Anita Dunn, is leaving the White House this month. We went there to see her before she goes, and it's our latest installment of Badass Women of Washington. You first came here as an intern in 1978. Wow. Yes. For President Carter. For President Carter. But it was a man's world. It was a total man's world. Anita Dunn was one of the first women in presidential politics to change that, eventually landing in the inner circle of two winning campaigns and two administrations, President Obama and now President Biden. As a junior staffer in 1984 on John Glenn's campaign, she set a high bar for herself. I made the decision that the next time I wanted to work on a presidential campaign, I was going to be at the table. So I didn't work on campaigns until I was at a point where that's where my seat was. Dunn earned that seat by working as a congressional aide, then political consultant for countless Democratic congressional campaigns, though it was hard to find work during the 1996 election when she was pregnant. Is it true that really only female candidates would hire you? I would say if you look at who hired me that year, yes, that is quite true. Somebody would call me and say, I've got this candidate in town, I want to bring them over to meet you. And I'd be coming down the stairs in my most pregnant self, and I could just watch the candidate's face like... (laughs) And then you didn't get the job? And I wouldn't get hired, of course not. I wanted people to know I was a mom. I talked openly about I'm not going to be in or I can't be on that call because... That was pretty risky back then. But I felt it was important. If you have senior women who are openly talking about their children and the time they're going to set aside for their children and the parameters of their relationships, like I'm leaving the office every day at this time for pick up, pick up at daycare, it gives other women permission. It was intentional. It was quite it. intentional. Yes. Oh, hello, lady. Now, many of the women she's surrounded by in the Biden White House have small children. She is known for having an open-door policy. I'm not a big believer in mentorship, although I'm, I'm happy to mentor anybody who wants to walk through my door and get some advice. I'm a huge believer in sponsorship. Which What's is, the difference? Oh, the difference is huge, Dana. Mentorship is I'm happy to give you advice. I'm happy to be your sounding board. I'm happy to be your railing wall when things don't go well. But sponsorship is a very active role in somebody's career. It's not just... I'm going to give you advice, but I'm going to actively promote you. Her sponsors were men, since there were so few women. This is a recommendation letter written some 45 years ago by her first White House boss, Carter Chief of Staff Hamilton Jordan. Dunn is widely credited for turning around the Biden campaign during the 2020 primaries after brutal losses in Iowa and New Hampshire. At the end of the day, it's about setting priorities 
and not being scared to make decisions. People in politics who are scared to make decisions are losing campaign managers and, and, and losing operatives. So make a decision and stick with it. And stick with it. And by the way, you're going to make a wrong decision occasionally. There are people who are paralyzed about making a mistake. And that is, in politics, one of the worst things you can do is allow yourself to get paralyzed. While President Biden is known for forgiving, it is done ever the loyal staffer who doesn't forget. Is that fair that you hold grudges? I have gotten that reputation. And I think most people who have worked with me will tell you that I'm actually a pretty nice person who does forgive. (laughs) And I move on. But I also believe that in politics, it is important sometimes for people to understand that there are lines they should not cross. As a trailblazing woman in Democratic politics, Dunn said reading the New York Attorney General report on Andrew Cuomo's sexual harassment allegations was painful. You know, you and I were on Capitol Hill for a long time, and we've seen the power relationships that can exist in politics. Reading about the experiences those 11 women had gone through, you know, felt like, you know, 45 years of watching, um, you know, America in many respects. She says she only joined this administration temporarily to help with the COVID crisis and is soon leaving. My first ambition was to be a sportscaster. Really? Yes. She may not have lived that dream. I'm a very competitive person, Dana, so I ended up in politics. But she did okay. Thank you, Anita Dunn. And up next, she's idolized on the left, demonized on the right. What's it like being AOC? A sneak peek at my new special coming up. On this program, I press newsmakers about the news of the day. But tomorrow night, you'll see a different kind of interview show where I spend time with influential people to get a sense of the person behind the public face. First up, being AOC. It's one of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's most personal TV interviews to date. But we also talked about any plans she may have for higher office. Are you going to challenge Senator Schumer (laughs) in a primary race? You know, I... Here's the thing, is that, and I, I, I know it drives everybody nuts, but the way that I really feel about this and the way that I really approach my politics and my political career is that I do not look at things and I do not set my course positionally. And I know there's a lot of people who do not believe that, but I really, I can't operate the way that I operate and do the things that I do in politics while trying to be aspiring to other things or calculating to other things. And so all of that is to say is that I make decisions based on what I think our people need and my community needs. And so I'm not commenting on that. You can watch a lot more of my in-depth interview tomorrow night at 9 p.m. right here on CNN. Thanks so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. The news continues next.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.